Well, for many of you that are in the house for the first time in a while, it's good to have you back. For those of you at home, it's good to have you with us. Everybody, it's good to be here, isn't it, today? We're going to open the scripture to Acts 10 this morning, and we're going to read two parts of that. So we're going to start at verse 1, Acts chapter 10, verse 1, and we're going to hear about uh, Cornelius and Peter, and we're going to hear what Peter has to testify about this morning. He's a witness to what happened with Jesus. Acts 10, 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. We're going to skip to verse 34. As you find that, um, however you're reading electronically or in paper this morning, we should note that in between what we just read and what we're about to read, Peter also is visited by God and told that Cornelius is going to come and he's supposed to go with him. So then finally they meet at Cornelius' house with his family and the attendants and everybody else, and Peter speaks in verse 34. It says, that Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to, his people, or to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the provinces of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. We should recognize in this text, one, if you, I, I encourage you to read all of Acts 10 and 11, if you would, this afternoon. It has everything to do with why probably most of us are here today, is because they were responsive to the voice of the Lord. Uh, that was the moment of opening the door to Gentiles, um, and I'm assuming most of you are Gentiles in the room. Cornelius, when God approaches him, we can recognize that Cornelius had a divine appointment. He was what we would term at the time, as we look back, a God-fearer. That is, uh, as far as what Judaism allowed, he wasn't born into that faith. He would have been somebody who, prior to Jesus, there were people that kind of sat around the faith of Judaism and looked in 
and did everything except kind of the last phases of joining. They were, he was giving to the poor, and he was uh, praying to God, and he was very interested. He was spiritually hungry and, and more than seeking, we might say. He had a divine appointment. Because of that, he was listening to God. When God spoke, Cornelius was able to hear because his ears were already open to that possibility. He had a divine appointment. Peter, and this is why you should go read it, because it's just a really fun story to read, as Peter is sitting on the roof waiting for like a midday meal, basically, which was not abnormal in his time and place. He's sitting there, he's hungry, and then God visits him through a vision with food. And it comes down from heaven. And Peter, all of a sudden, was able to listen in his divine appointment because he had heard God before and he knew what to listen for. Both Cornelius and Peter had a divine appointment. For Peter, specifically, he was surprised with new possibilities. Is it possible, as we consider divine appointments like these, is it possible that you are here this morning by divine appointment as well? What could God have in store for you over the next few minutes this morning? What could God have in store for you over the rest of Sunday? What could God have in store for you over the rest of this week and the weeks ahead and the years ahead? Is it possible that you have a divine appointment just like Cornelius and Peter to listen to God? Is it possible that your presence here indicates that you are seeking the voice and presence of God? Now it's a yes or no question. You don't have to answer to me, but you can answer it to yourself. Is it possible? Is it possible that you are seeking the voice and presence of God simply by your presence here today? I hope you are, as we listen to the voice of God through his scripture. Let's look back at 34 and 35 of our text. Peter begins, he says, I now realize it is how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. I want to give you three truths this morning that we see in the text, and the first one starts here. God's heart is for everyone to be saved. That is God's actual heart. That's his desire, is that everyone would be saved. Peter says, I know that God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts from every nation. That doesn't mean everybody from every nation is going to be saved. The word is ha-ethne, from which we get ethnic or ethnicity. The Greek is what we're translating there. Um, And it would simply mean the Gentiles, but it would basically mean the Gentiles and all their sort of, not the way we think of nations, like from the United States, but sort of groupings of tribes and uh, group uh, identities that people had from from their people groups. He's going to accept people from every group, basically. He's not going to show favoritism on who he shares the message with. It's for everyone. That's what's being said here. But that that specific word to accept, I think we need to kind of pull apart just a little bit. Because we use the word a lot, actually, in our culture right now, this idea of acceptance and to accept. And in the way we use it culturally is one of the ways that it's used here. Uh, It is to agree with everything that is given. That is to accept. Somebody hands you something, you accept it for all, all the terms and conditions or whatever. So as a for instance, if I hand you a $5 bill, it's worth $5, right? You accept it. You accept the fact that it's worth $5. That's kind of outside of the the acceptance between you and me, but we recognize that. If you decide that you're going to go to a store or go out to lunch afterwards and use the $5 bill and tell the person behind the counter, I actually believe it's worth $10, what are they going to say? No, it's not. It's worth 5 
Nice try, buddy. Right? You can't really revalue it. It is what it is. You accept it. You take it. That's acceptance in a very, very basic sense. But there's another sense in which it's getting used here as well. Both are in play. The other sense would be uh, in a similar circumstance, if you and I went out to lunch after I gave you that $5 bill and we sat down, acceptance in that case is simply to accept the hospitality of one another or the presence of one another, but you don't have to agree on everything about one another in that instance. You accept the presence, but not necessarily all the opinions or thoughts. In fact, you may differ on some of those and your, your acceptance and talking together doesn't weigh on whether you agree on everything or not. God accepts from every nation, Peter says, and both those senses are actually in play here because what's happening is both Jew and Gentile, in this particular case, it would, uh, Peter is saying, have been given the ability to receive salvation. They're extended that hospitality in a basic sense of acceptance. You all have the opportunity to receive what God has done through Jesus Christ, but not everyone of all those nations is going to say yes and accept the invitation. And when you accept the invitation, you take it for all the terms and conditions that come with it. You can't revalue it, although historically people have continued to try. It doesn't work. You can't revalue the offer of salvation. You are offered it, but you have to accept it, and then you take it for what it is. And it's better than we think. Now, how are we accepted by God in that instance, Peter tells us, and we ought not miss it. He says he accepts those who fear him and do what is right, and I think the order matters here. We can try and do what is right till we're, uh, we've extended all of our energy, but if we don't fear him in the first place, the doing what is right isn't going to get us there. It isn't going to earn us salvation. We need to fear him, and if I were going to give you four key words instead of giving you a definition, four key words for what it means to fear the Lord, I think this, this gets us where we need to go. The four key words I'd tell you for fear is reverence, submission, trust, and obedience. That defines what fear of the Lord is. Reverence, submission, trust, and obedience. Let me give you just an example on the reverence piece that we can use going ahead. It is reverential. You'll see this sometimes when there's a funeral procession. People will still do this, although less and less we see it. When going from the church or the funeral home, everybody gathers and drives together following the hearse, and they go to the cemetery for the, the committal service or the graveside, you will see people, especially on a two-lane road, pull aside on both sides of the road out of reverence as the funeral procession goes by. That's an act of reverence, respect in that sense, recognizing what's going on as more important and definitely important. To, enough to pull aside for. Consequently, the opposite side of that, just as an interesting uh, way to think about it the other way, in a similar example, uh, when Stephanie and I were living up in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia years ago, we would have people do the opposite when an ambulance came by, uh, that when it came by, they would, people would reluctantly wait until the last minute to pull over as late as possible, and then you'd always have one or two people, almost every instance, who would become an ambulance chaser and try and get out as soon as possible to see if they could get by three or four cars that are still pulled aside. That's irreverent. That's the opposite of what we're supposed to do. Happened over and over. Cornelius is reverent. He listens to God, even as an outsider in this instance. And if you read the text, he shows so much reverence, trying to 
reverence all over the place, basically, that he bows down before Peter, in fact, when he meets Peter, and Peter says, hold on, I'm not God, get up, don't worship me, buddy. But he shows reverence, that's to fear him. Reverence, obedience, trust, and submission. Now, then, that following that is then to do what is right, what is godly or righteous is the word that's there. Doing right fears, follows the fear of the Lord, right? We cannot achieve salvation through works, Scripture tells us over and over. Why does one follow the other? Well, because of that trust piece. When we trust the Lord, when we fear him in that way, we trust that he's the one who has the right voice, who has the right answers. Particularly, we trust that God has the answer to evil, injustice, sin, and death. All the things that trouble us in this life, we trust that he's the one who knows how to answer those, and he's done so through Jesus Christ. That's what it means to fear him and do what is right. That's why the order matters, and we can only truly do what is right by God's power working in us. So it starts by fearing the Lord, by accepting the terms and conditions that he gives us of salvation. Cornelius believed that God was able to do that. His ears were open when God spoke, and then he could say yes to God's work in Jesus Christ. Fear him, then do what is right. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of the belief that God is able. Do you fear the Lord this morning? Let's go to verse 39. Peter says, We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on the cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Second truth that we should recognize is that if God can raise the dead, he can do the impossible in you. Now, we should make a couple notes here because sometimes people try and talk about limitations to God's power and they say, well, can God make a square circle or a rock so heavy that even he can't lift? They're nonsensical questions to even ask. A, a circle is a circle, a square is a square. You can't cross those over. And, and asking the question, basically, if you translate those questions, can God do something that God can't do, is a nonsensical question. It's a self-defeating statement. It doesn't work, right? Of course, God can't do something against his own character. That's hardly a limitation, though, when you get down to it. The other thing we should point out is that while Jesus does heal throughout his ministry and release people from demons and do all, all sorts of marvelous things, he doesn't do that to everyone. Why? Because the promise is that for everyone who's in Christ, the full healing will come at the end. We get some of the glimpses of that, some of the signs of that, and some of the experience of that now, but not all of it, right? So it is true that God can do the impossible in you. Not every relationship is going to be healed, though, right now. Not every problem is going to be solved but what's going to happen is, through Jesus Christ, God will make all things new in you when you accept him. And that's going to change how you operate in his world. Peter says we are witnesses of God doing the impossible. But we should recognize something about Peter and his personality. Well, he's the guy who actually got out of the boat. You know, the, the other disciples did not. He tried to walk on water. Peter still had his moments of doubt. Peter denied Christ. We read about it on Friday night in the Good Friday service. I actually got to do that scripture reading. That's a hard reading to do. 
That's an emotional reading to do when you're reading that. And Peter denies Christ for the third time, and then the rooster crows, and he goes and weeps. That's a hard moment. Peter, who was all in, still has his doubt, and then he's hiding in a room with the other disciples while Jesus is lying in a tomb, not realizing that he's been raised from the dead in the end. Also, Peter has doubt here. We didn't read that part of the text, but I told you about it, where Peter, this sheet comes down in his vision, and God says, kill and eat. It's got these clean and unclean animals, and Peter's like, whoa, God, I can't do something you've asked me not to do. And God says, but I'm asking you to do it now. I'm telling you, things have changed, Peter. So the second time God speaks, it's the voice speaks, it says in verse 15, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Peter, it turns out, wasn't actually open to God's work with the Gentiles as much as he thought he was, and even questioned God's word and work in the process. Peter had his moments of doubt, even when he was listening to God. Have you ever had moments of doubt, or moments where you question God? It's okay to answer yes. I'm not tricking you with it. We all do. Even the most vibrant faith has moments where you say, God, I, I, I wonder. I wonder what's going on here. I wonder if you're really behind this. I wonder, some people wonder if God's really powerful, or God's really even here. Those moments hit all of us at different times in life. I remember as a hospital chaplain, a number of years ago, um, I was with a family as a father and a son son's about in his 30s so the father's obviously older than his 30s and the the mother's in the bed in the icu and that was the moment i was with them when she passed away and we talked a little bit they got their affairs together at the end of all that um, and we started walking out of the room and the son turns to the dad and he says why did god allow this to happen now both of them had proclaimed they were not believers so it's an interesting question why did god allow this to happen dad and dad puts his arm on his shoulder and he says, son, I don't think we can blame God for this. That's the end of the conversation. I wanted to hear the rest of it. That's the end. But we can have our moments of doubt. We all do. Right? Even in that case, people who don't believe in God are still blaming God, wondering, God, where are you? Because they actually believe. We can have our moments of doubt. That's okay. But Peter shows us the key to what to do in those moments of doubt, what to do to move forward. Have you ever been in those conversations with people where you, uh, you're sitting there with them and they never ask a single question about you and all they do is talk about themselves? <laughs> you know those conversations? Maybe you're guilty of it. I've been guilty of it myself even, right? You don't ask a single question. They don't ask a single question about you. They just talk for all the whole time about themselves. Peter listened when God spoke. It's often the case in my experience that people will question God and ask the why questions and then close the door to the response very quickly. God, I want to ask all the questions, but I don't want to have a dialogue about it. I just want to be grumpy. I just want to be angry. I just want to be left to my emotions for a while. And we can have those emotions. We can do that. But Peter shows us that you actually need to listen because God actually has an answer. We're not going to hear it if we close him off. If we just have a one-sided conversation of the why, 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 and I'm never going to listen to God's side of it. When you doubt God's power, do you take time to listen for his voice? That's the key. We're all going to have those times of doubt, but we need to carve out the time to listen when things are going wrong as well. Peter tells us we are witnesses of everything God did. Even though he doubted, he says we're witnesses. 
The witnesses spoke to, were Peter and others, and he spoke to some of the witnesses. They spoke to Cornelius and his family in this moment. You have witnesses like the 12 apostles. Peter's one of those who witnessed the risen Jesus Christ. Many of the other disciples witnessed the risen Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that there were 500 who saw him at the same time, who witnessed Jesus Christ, who were, many of whom were alive to testify to that. What did they see? What did they witness? Well, Peter tells us, of course, we witnessed his life and his, his healing and his releasing people from demon possession and all that he did in his ministry. But Peter says, we also watched him die on the cross. And it's, it's kind of annoying to us in our day and age, I think, that we don't get in the Gospels much more detail than he died on the cross. But they had all seen it. They all knew the gruesomeness of the cross. That's all they needed to say. The Romans were incredibly good at making sure people died on the cross. They had perfected that. They knew what went into that. Jesus himself had been bloodied and beaten and probably had a, a tremendous amount of blood loss and weakness prior to even making it to the cross and carrying his own uh, crossbeam to the cross. When he was finally put on the cross, there was no way he's surviving this, and the Roman soldiers aren't going to let that happen anyways. That's their job. Right? The point of the cross was not to let somebody be really injured and then go. It was to deter anybody else from doing what that person did in the first place by making that person suffer as much as possible and die. They watched all that happen. We were witnesses of that, he says. We watched him die on the cross. Then guess what? He was alive on the third day again, walking around. And it wasn't like people seeing Elvis in the distance, right? They said, we ate and drank with him. We sat down with him and he commanded us on what to do next. We didn't just see him from a distance. We sat and touched the guy. We're witnesses of this. There are many people who have tried to explain away the empty tomb and the events of Easter. It started even, you can see it in Matthew 28, where they're trying to, the religious authorities are trying to explain away the empty tomb with the guards, saying we're paying them off, saying if anybody asks, the disciples stole the body. That, by the way, is attested not just in Scripture, but outside of Scripture by another source. If you're looking for something to, to verify that. People have been trying to explain this away, but the historical facts of the matter keep pointing to what the scripture tells us actually happened happened right we still have the witnesses speaking today just like they did there's a uh, gary habermas the new testament scholar uses his there's a bunch of different ways to do this but uses his 12 minimal facts on the resurrection um, that virtually across the board new testament scholars whether they're atheist agnostic or believers and if you're not familiar with the new testament scholarly world there are atheists agnostics and believers it's a big broad world not you don't just have to believe to study the new testament it turns out many people do and have good scholarship as a result he points out 12 minimal facts that almost all scholars that study this agree on first of all we should point out that jesus existed it's an uncontested historical fact Anybody that's worth their salt would, would not claim otherwise. But he points out six things, and they're not going to be on the screen. I'll just read them for you. Because the historical witnesses still speak today. There's agreement that Jesus died by crucifixion. There's agreement across the board that very soon afterwards, his followers had real experiences that they thought were the actual appearances of Jesus Christ. Third, his, uh, belief, the, uh, their, the belief was that their lives were transformed, or scholars agree that their lives were transformed as a result of seeing Jesus, even to the point of being willing to die specifically for their faith in the resurrection message. Now, lots of people are willing to die for their beliefs. We've seen that through history. 
but they had living witnesses around who could also say, well, actually something different happened. And if something different happened, you often got that. Even that Matthew 28 reference, people were trying to say something different happened, but nobody else could, could uh, claim that. They actually verified what the witnesses said at the time. Nobody countered their claim that Jesus was alive in any real way. Fourth, they, uh, scholars believe across the board that these things, that the crucifixion happened, that they, the resurrection happened, that these things were taught very early and very soon after the crucifixion. Why that matters is it's not legendary. Right? They were saying this from the very beginning. Legend takes a long time to develop. They didn't develop that. We can go very early on that to figure that out. Scholars also agree, fifth, that James, the Jesus' unbelieving brother, became a Christian due to his own experiences that he thought was with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And sixthly, that the Christian persecutor Paul also became a believer after a similar experience. There's more that you can add to the list. That's just the basic, uh, the closest, tightest thing that you can find unanimity on among the scholars. But the, the point of it all isn't just to go through the list, but that these things can be investigated. Right? It's not a historical endeavor or a scientific endeavor uh, that studies the repeatable. This is a historical endeavor which studies the unrepeatable. Right? You have to use that discipline to study this, but we can all do it. We can all investigate what the witnesses say. And like Peter, the question is, are we listening to the witnesses? It turns out that God raised Jesus from the dead, and he did that because he wants to do the same in you. That's why he raised Jesus. He raised Jesus to do the impossible in you, to begin a new work, to make you a new creation. And it turns out he left evidence for us to follow, witnesses and testimony, breadcrumbs through history that we can actually look at, touch, and verify. And if we're listening, come to the conclusion that, in fact, this really happened. The question is, what now? Let's go to verse 43. All the prophets testify, Peter says, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the truth is stated right there, the third truth. Everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins. If you go back to the beginning of Peter's message here, salvation begins with fear of the Lord, and that leads to doing right. That is, becoming godly by the work of Jesus Christ in you. Forgiveness is what's at play here, which stands in between sort of that fearing the Lord and then asking for forgiveness, and then we're able to do right. Forgiveness means that we are freed from the curse of sin. That's what's happening. That burden is lifted. Yes, we still live in a world that lives under the curse of sin, but we are no longer guided by that. Something else is happening within us. Right? It is salvation from the powers of sin, of death, of evil, of injustice in this world. That's what we're being saved from. Those things are still going to happen around us, but they do not guide us, nor do they dictate our hope. Our hope is beyond those things. Practically speaking, we live in a world of sin, like I said, but we're not ruled by sin. The church, when we're a people being made new, we're a people who are then looking to build the kingdom now as it's growing in our midst. Living as kingdom people, that's why the church at its best are the people who are caring for orphans, who are seeing, seeking racial reconciliation, who are valuing and championing life from conception to natural death, who are creating group homes and hospitals, who are doing all of this that God's kingdom would be realized, that we would anticipate that in our own lives, knowing that the fullness of that is on the way. 
for those who accept salvation through Jesus. It was by divine appointment that God did this through Jesus Christ. It was by divine appointment that Cornelius heard the voice of the Lord. It was by divine appointment that Peter responded and spoke and Cornelius came to know the Lord fully. It's by divine appointment potentially that you're here. Are you seeking the voice and presence of the Lord today?